The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Congratulations, David, for going over the 200 program mark this week. Your show has gone from zero to more than four million hits per program per month. Well, if you're a corporate sponsor and would like to reach a loyal, upscale international audience, primarily in Europe and America, then you are missing the best advertising vehicle on the planet. In discussion with David Gibbons. For more information, go to David Gibbons' homepage and click on Contact Us. Chapman, I'd like to start off with you, sir, as the founder of the Lost Canadians. Could you very briefly give us an overview of what you have accomplished over the last 20 years and where you are currently today, sir? Well, I, it's a matter of saying that quite a few people are involved. I just was one person. I couldn't have done it without all the people on the line with you today. But I was stripped of my Canadian citizenship, and I discovered it when I was about seven years old. And when I turned 18, I wanted to reclaim my Canadian citizenship, and it, I was told many times that I could not do so. So I started, as time went on and the decades passed, it just got to me a little bit that I could not be a citizen of the country I was born in. And so I started kind of broadcasting my story out there, and before I knew it, I had people contacting me, and it ended up being something that was all over the world. And I hooked up with John Reynolds. He was the first gentleman that actually, uh, in Parliament, that helped take this into the House of Commons. And we won in a first bill that was done in, let's see, it was May of 2005, and then we proceeded further and we got another bill passed in, let's see, it was 2009. It became effective on April 17th of 2009, and it changed the law, bringing equality of rights to women in Canada for the first time, and welcoming hundreds and hundreds of thousands of people. Probably there are half a million just in the United States, but it changed the laws retroactively going backwards, granting citizenship, and it turned out there were 12 ways to lose citizenship. So that's kind of a brief overview, if you will, and almost all the loopholes of how to lose were corrected, but there still remain some kind of glaring deficiencies. Could I bring you, Melinda Jarrett, into this conversation, and would you kindly give me some background to the history of where we are today, uh, maybe drawing a line in the sand, uh, possibly from 1947 onwards? Well, yes, my interest in this was through the Canadian War Brides, of which I'm an historian and uh, specializing in the history of the British and European War Brides who came to Canada following the Second World War. 
And I noticed over many years that I would get these inquiries from people uh, talking about citizenship, but I really didn't know much about it at the time. And frankly, wasn't like a lot of other people, wasn't interested. You know, not that I didn't care, but it was too difficult to comprehend for me. Citizenship wasn't something that I was focusing on as an area of study. So uh, when I was introduced to the Lost Canadian issue was through the story of Joe Taylor, who mother was a British war bride, father was a Canadian serviceman. They had married, and he had come to Canada as a baby, and the marriage didn't last, and they returned to Britain following the breakup of the marriage. And his case catapulted the whole issue of war brides and war brides' citizenship and children of war brides' citizenship onto the uh, front stage, uh, if you will, in uh, 2005, 2006. And he had been fighting for some time, and then I was dragged into it some time way, you could say, kicking and screaming, because I really didn't at the time think that it was my area, but I've soon since become somewhat of, a, of an expert at having written uh, a book on the issue of war children and two others on war brides, in which I conclude uh, chapters on this whole issue. And basically, the war brides were brought to here. They were promised their citizenship uh, by virtue of marriage to a Canadian serviceman, and but then the laws changed after they came here on January 1st, 1947, with the introduction of the First Citizenship Act. And unless you were, I mean, in the United States, there are hundreds, you know, uh, tens of thousands of war brides as well. You know that story. Uh, I'm sure you've heard about the war brides in the United States, GI brides. The thing that was different about Canada was that they were, that the Citizenship Act was introduced and they were not told about it. And if you lived like a many U.S. war brides, on a farm out in the, you know, in the rural areas and in small provinces in northern Ontario or uh, Alberta or New Brunswick, where I'm from, and you didn't get the newspaper. There was no television. There was no internet. People didn't know that about what was going on in the parliament and about laws. So they missed the deadlines to apply, and their children missed the deadlines, and basically they were operating in a vacuum for the last 30, 40, 50, 60 years, and it's only now as they start to apply for passports or, or Canada pension or old age pension that they find out that, oh my God, I'm not a citizen because I didn't fill out those forms. May I turn to the Honourable Marlene Jennings? Marlene, where do you consider the government is with this now? Is there any real progress that you can see occurring here, or would you say that this is not exactly one of the finest hours for Canada, given that there are so many people still out there that are in such trouble over this? David, I would have to say that this is not Canada's finest hour. The current government has demonstrated absolutely no interest in correcting the areas and those cases that are, have still been left behind. My own situation, my citizenship came into question because my father was an American citizen who came to Canada. And I actually had to go to the Canadian Citizenship Registrar to have my citizenship confirmed. But I ha- and I have a letter that says I was born in Canada, Canadian citizen, have always been a Canadian citizen, have never, I have never lost my citizenship. But I have to say, when I learn of more and more cases of Canadians who lived all their lives believing that they were Canadians and then apply, as Melinda said, for their old age security, 
and are being told that they're not citizens, I wonder if in, you know, seven, eight, nine years, when I apply, if I'm going to be told, oh, we made a mistake. May I ask you, Marlene, uh, this is clearly showing that both the 1947 and the amendment in 1977 really haven't been fulfilled. What is the reluctance, what is the core reluctance here that is still not allowing so many of these people to be issued with citizenship? At the present time, the minister has the discretionary authority to issue citizenship, to grant citizenship on a case-by-case situation. If further amendments were brought to the Citizenship Act of Canada, which would close the loophole that allows gender discrimination, where someone today is able to get their citizenship through a grandfather, through the male line, but not through the female line, if the female line is the Canadian part, I think that they're worried that if they close that loophole, then over time you're going to have large numbers of individuals who may not have been born in Canada, whose citizenship would have come through a female line that they're going to apply. I say the more the merrier. Can I ask you, before I move on to Andrew, the Queen's visit recently and her statement, commitment to freedom, fairness and the rule of law are commonly and rightly associated with this nation. Is that having any effect on government? Is that perhaps bringing them to a point where they must see clearer about this issue before their reputation is fully tarnished? Unfortunately, no. And I think that part of it has to do with the fact that the media today is not necessarily interested in this story. There was a great deal of media coverage of this back in 2006, 7, 8 until the legislation closed most of the loopholes and granted citizenship retroactively to many, many, many of thousands of Canadians. But the fact that there are still a number of loopholes that exist, the media isn't interested and most Canadians aren't aware of it. I think if we can somehow with programs like yours, get ordinary Canadians to understand that there is this problem. There remains gender discrimination in our Citizenship Act, not going forward, but they corrected the discrimination on the male side, but not on the female side, going backwards. I think that then government will want to move on this. Could I ask you, Andrew, this question? I know that you have been working with Don Chapman for a very long time with this. How do you see this panning out? How do you see this being progressive over coming years? Well, I think you, uh, uh, first of all, you need a citizenship act. Uh, I mean, the citizenship act now is, you know, pretty dysfunctional, and uh, it has all sorts of problems. And the latest attempt at the last Canadians that was put in place a couple of years ago, you know, created a further problem. It is creating lost Canadians, you know, as we speak. And it relates to people who are second generation of Canadians born abroad. They're not Canadian citizens, which essentially renders them stateless. And we proposed a fix for that in the committee. And we essentially said that if, like, take anybody's case. They might be out of the country working for one of the international companies. They could have been actually working for government. And they have a child. And then they are overseas a couple of years, and they come back with the child, and the child could spend most of their life in Canada. 
but when they are in their 20s or 30s, they happen to be posted overseas for the private sector, and they happen to have a child. Uh, that child now is not considered Canadian because Canadian citizenship is only guaranteed to first generation born abroad. Marlene Jennings, as a member of the Privy Council, how do you see the position in Canada now with these issues? Uh, what is it that the Privy Council has to say about this? As a member of the Privy Council, the Privy Council as such doesn't have anything to do, uh, has no authority over this. It's the government that can bring through amendments to the Citizenship Act, or it can be done if the government refuses to do so, to be brought through a private member's bill. But anyone who has watched Parliament knows that the chances are very, very limited for a private member's bill to actually go through all stages in the House of Commons and then over to the Senate. And even when it does and becomes enacted, the government ignores the legislation. The government, this current government right now, is literally allowing its citizenship department to ignore a decision of the Supreme Court of Canada. Is there any parity with the way that the Homeland Security works in the United States? Are the same sort of issues, the red tape, the bureaucracy? Well, Canada suffers from bureaucracy, as does any other Western democracy, I believe. But that is not the issue. The issue here is that we have a government that does not wish to address the issue of loopholes in the Citizenship Act that it adopted and came into force a year ago, which they beat their chests about in public about how they had solved the problem for everyone. Turns out they didn't, and now they don't want to go back to the drawing board. If I turn back to you, Melinda Jarrett, again, if you were going to write a social history document on Canada, where would you place the country at the moment in this area? How would you define it? Well, I think they failed in their duty in many respects. Uh, Canada is a signatory to a number of human rights conventions at the United Nations. And, I mean, one of the most basic and fundamental is the right to an identity and a right to a nationality, for example, and not to leave children stateless. And to strip citizens, people who heretofore thought that they were citizens, who've lived here their entire lives, war bride children who were brought here as babes in arms on their mother's breasts, on these ships, uh, arrived here never knowing all these years, and now they're being told they're not citizens, and to get into lineup behind everybody else, 900,000 people at the last count, and a 15-month waiting list just to get your records even looked at, I think it's appalling, and I think that in terms of a social history, Canadians will look back at this time with embarrassment and with much shame, I think, and that, that the people who could have done something, who had the authority to do it, didn't do it. And, and with all the information that is in front of them, which is, which is what makes us so crazy about it, is that we are willing to provide them with all the documentation. We, we've done all the research. It's sitting there ready there, waiting for them to use, and they just ignore it, even when you give it to them. So uh, the Supreme Court, Benner, I mean, the, 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 uh, there's not just one Supreme Court decision that's, that they're ignoring. There's a couple of them, three of them, I believe. So at this point in the game, uh, I think Canada 
Canada's got an embarrassing record that's going to go down in history until somebody decides that it's important enough to give people their rights as they are so entitled to, not just as Canadian citizens through our charter, but through several United Nations uh, documents to which Canada's a signatory. Don Chapman is the founder of The Lost Canadians. Have you considered or could you give us an outline of the impacts on families, on those families that are split up, perhaps families split up because the children have to live abroad or the parents have to live abroad. Is this not a huge issue where you have these these massive dilemmas? David, yes it is. For example, just a few years back there was a couple that had come from Iran to the United States and then entered Canada through the U.S., claimed refugee status, and it took about 12 years to for the government of Canada to say this family was not a refugee that had a real legal claim to be a refugee. So they sent him back to the country he had come in from, which was the United States, but in the meantime, they had had a child who was now about 10 years old in Canada. Amnesty International got all involved in this and said, you can't split up this family, and this child has a right to be in Canada. So Canada eventually accepted the entire family back into Canada. But what was interesting was Canada was doing this against lost Canadians for my own family. I could get back into Canada, but I had to leave three minor aged children behind. And the impact I wouldn't I wouldn't leave my children. It's against the convention in the United Nations on the rights of the child. I see it with Patrick Chandler right now. I see it with even adults who want to take care of their parents who might be Canadian, but they don't have the right to be here. It's, it's really an amazing thing for a country that espouses to be the world's leader in human rights to be ignoring those United Nations conventions. And all of this comes down to just basic common sense. So yes, it's got huge impact. For you, Andrew, how would you, what sort of message would you want to send to government at this stage, knowing that we do have these dilemmas, knowing that this really is tarnishing this government and this country? What sort of action could you put forward to change the mindsets? Well, I think what you have to do is you have to make sure that the legislation is in compliance with the Charter of Rights, and it's not. And it's important to note that it's the Supreme Court uh, that makes uh, the determination whether or not a law is constitutional. And as with the previous decision, this government has ignored it. Now, the real problem is, is that for an individual to be able to access the Supreme Court, it costs hundreds of thousands of dollars or perhaps millions of dollars, and it becomes very difficult. And they used to have an intervener funding program where for cases like this, we could make funding available that the conservatives eliminated. But if you want to fix the Citizenship Act, you have to bring it into compliance with the Canadian Charter of Rights and Freedoms, which is really our guiding principle for making laws in these countries and enforcing rights. And unless you have a government that's interested in that, then we have a problem. There's a many famous Canadians who were lost Canadians, and I'll start off with one, Romeo Dallaire, General Romeo Dallaire. And Don Chapman can give you chapter and verse and all sorts of others. And, uh, you know, it, it really is unbelievable that something as basic as citizenship should be denied to Canadians that should have them. And by today's laws, they would have it. 
but going back in time prior to the charter. And uh, I think it's very incongruent for the government to say that we're going to treat those people differently. Melinda Jarrett, as a historian looking back at Paul Martin, looking back at what he was trying to define in the character of Canada, how do you think that he would feel at this stage? Well, I think he'd be very embarrassed, and he would probably not be too impressed at the way his grand plan panned out in the end, because his dream of uh, uniting a diverse country uh, under the banner of one nationality and a citizenship has, in my view, and all our views actually, fallen to the wayside through the bureaucracy, the politicians who fail to do what is right because they can, because they can. And I think Paul Martin Sr. would be rolling over in his grave. Let's put it that way. And I think there are a few other politicians, Mackenzie King probably too. Mackenzie King, who, when the war brides arrived on Canada's shores on August 31st, 1946, he came over on the Queen Mary with a, with a group of war brides. And he, at the last day as they were entering Halifax Harbor, he gathered them all around and welcomed them to Canada as the newest, the greatest new citizens that Canada could welcome to its shores. He called them citizens. Now, here we've got, you know, 65 years later, and somebody just doesn't get it. And a lot of people don't seem to get it within the federal government. And I think they're going to be paying a price. Their legacy is going to be one of a failure to act. And there's a lot of people, Don and Andrew and Marlene, have all mentioned different cases here. We know there's tens of thousands of people who are still affected by this who fall into that loophole that they always say, oh, the, you know, it's just, uh, you know, splinters and, uh, you know, that, the, that there's a crack in the, you know, in the floor and people have fallen through. Well, I'd say that there's hardly a splinter left on the floor and the basement's full of people, you know, quelling for their rights. We just know so many. They're coming out of the woodwork, literally. And Paul Martin, I think, would not be too happy. And I think his son, Paul Martin Jr., should be saying something about it, too, and in his father's defense, because they're ruining uh, Paul Martin's legacy, Paul Martin Sr.'s legacy, I believe, by, by failing to act on this issue. It's, it's a terrible thing, and I hope that somebody's listening, because if we don't get this right now pretty soon, people are dying. Like, we're, we're getting people. We got a fellow last week took a stroke and a heart attack, his children begging, please, let's get the citizenship issue sorted out here before my father dies. May I go back to you, Don Chapman? Sure. Out of these people affected, and if we're talking about the tens of thousands, of those, how many would you say are actually stateless? Right now, we just, as Andrew Telegdy pointed out, this is a new phenomena created by Bill C-37 <laughs> that was supposed to be corrected and has not been corrected. So, right now, I know of two cases. However, the problem being that when you have a stateless child, you a whole host of problems come about, and you don't want to say anything because you're raising red flags to your child. So really, out of the two, one doesn't want to talk about it, and the other will talk about it. And the baby is stateless in Beijing, China, and being stateless doesn't even qualify for medical in China. You can't travel internationally with a stateless child. So... It creates such huge problems for the family that people might have a stateless child, but they will not come forward and speak about it. Consider that when you internationally adopt a child, as soon as the paperwork done is done, that child becomes a Canadian citizen. Yet, Canadians who have a child internationally, and whatever fluke happens to be second generation, 
they don't have the same treat, you know, it doesn't make any sense. That person can adopt a child overseas, and that child becomes a Canadian citizen, yet their own child doesn't have those same rights. David, what Andrew is alluding to, and a good example is those children that came from Haiti during the earthquake, they could all be Canadian citizens right now, yet for our stateless child, Rachel Chandler in Beijing, she's a year and a half old, and she's still stateless. Or to a Canadian. And if the father, Patrick Chandler, abandoned his child, then any other Canadian could adopt Rachel, and in about six to eight weeks, Rachel is a Canadian citizen. But the father doesn't have the right to bring his own child here. Tell me what kind of human rights record is a country that does that to their own people? Let me ask you, Don Chapman, uh, let me ask you, how many people are affected, would you consider at the moment by this? How many people are affected and in a dilemma where they are not recipients of Medicare, pensions, hospital support, uh, health care? This is uh, the million-dollar question. David, I really don't know, but I do know this, that a lot of people are currently getting benefits, and something triggers it. In the case that Melinda can tell you about, it was just one woman moved from uh, maybe Nova Scotia to, I think it was uh, Manitoba, and had to get a driver's license. That triggered the background check of her status, which then set the path to having everything canceled. So how many people are pre-1947 births in Canada to maybe non-Canadian fathers, like in the case of Marlene Jennings? Tens of thousands. Could yes. they all be do, denied does, does yes. this Does this not seem to be rather excessive, given here in the United States, Homeland Security is fairly severe in its actions, in its conclusions? Uh, but nevertheless, it will look after aliens or non-immigrants that come over from Mexico and it will give them health care. What does this say about a system that will literally deny health care in Canada? Where would these people have to go, Don, to be taken care of? Would they have to cross the border? How does that work? This is Marlene, if I may. Go they'll ahead. get health care, but they'll be billed for it because they won't be eligible for our universal health care system coverage here. So, and most people would not be able to afford to pay for the health care. They wouldn't have their private health care insurance because most Canadians benefit from, you know, we're residents here, we benefit from our Medicare system. It's horrible what is happening. It's appalling. And I agree with Melinda when she says Paul Martin Sr., if he knew of this, he'd be turning over in his grave. I always, in my programs, attempt to go back in time. We have so many critical areas that we have to look at in this world today, and, and I do sometimes go back to the Founding Fathers or back to great statesmen of the past who I think that some may say that their ideas, their ideology may not apply now, but of course I think that they do. So that when you return to Paul Martin, is there not some sort of initiative, maybe Don Chapman, that you can put in place to remind the government of what a essentially was attempted back in those days of Paul Martin, what he was trying to do, and alert them to that fact, and, and maybe uh, bring them to a greater sense of conscience about this? David, I've tried as hard as I can, but I can't get the minister to return any of my phone calls. I mean, he just will not do it. He's not interested. So it's the only thing I could say to the minister is ignorance is not a virtue, and he just won't listen. A couple of things do come to mind, 
in this. And that is common sense should rule. In Canada, we should have a citizenship ombudsman. Nobody knows, in all of the people you're talking with today, nobody knows the value of citizenship and how a right can be stripped away from you more than Andrew Talegdi, who was in Hungary during the revolution and escaped. Andrew is so right. We need a new citizenship act that is charter compliant and will really protect the rights of Canadians. And lastly, I have to say that when I look at the difference between the United States and Canada, they seem to be saying, okay, well, it's only a handful. Maybe it's a 10,000. It's not a big deal. I look at the United States when two U.S. journalists were taken in North Korea, and we had two presidents that stood by to try to get them out. I see a huge difference between Canada and the United States, where in the United States they're much more apt to say, what has the government done to you? And in Canada, they're more likely to look at the individual and say, what have you done to deserve this? May I ask you, Marlene Jennings, yes. essentially, what is it that you could, what could the media do in this situation? Is the media somewhat disinterested with this in Canada at this stage? Are, are they not the only vehicle that could really affect change? The media is disinterested. Marlene Jennings, as a member of Parliament, could work with Don Chapman and the Lost Canadians to try to bring forth a citizenship act that actually respects the Charter and respects Canada's international obligations. However, I have to say, it's kind of difficult because we don't have, as a simple member of Parliament, I would not have the resources that the government would have with a whole league of jurists and experts, etc., to make sure that a new citizenship act doesn't create further loopholes. That's one. But I think that we need to just try to get the media interested so that they shine a spotlight on this, so that ordinary Canadians begin calling their members of Parliament, regardless of what party they belong to, and saying, this is not right, this is not common sense, this has to change, and it has to be done quickly. And for you, Don, what was it really that raised the profile of these issues? Was it the Internet? Was it simply that people were coming to the realization that this simply was not right? What occurred and when did that occur? I, honest to goodness, David, I think it was that Canada really truly does have one giant irritant amongst its now new citizens, and that's me. <laughs> I, I was going to work at this to get it done because, you know what, it's the right thing to do. These World War II veterans fought for me. I'm living in a world that wouldn't be even remotely the way it is without what they did for me. And when I had World War II veterans coming to me and saying, I have been stripped of my citizenship from the country I fought for. I felt I had to do it back. And yes, the Internet was the leading answer. Programs like yours are phenomenal as they change the entire world and bring us all closer together. That really was the key. But I think that even the old-fashioned way, when I first started this thing many years ago, it's been a slow process, but we have slowly gotten people uh, not just the public, but we've gotten people like Andrew and Marlene and John Reynolds and uh, even Melinda, where they're also broadcasting it as well. Do you think, Don, that there is anything else that can be done here? You talk about a separate party, but you're somebody that is not uh, led by the government but can actually overview this and be a, a completely independent feature. Yeah, the, yes, David. What, what it is, if you kind of look at Canada's Citizenship Act right now, you want to have 
citizenship that is that is a charter right, meaning that it's a constitutional right. Canada's citizenship, the way it stands now, is basically not a whole lot different than the speed limit sign. If the government wants to come in and change the speed limit from 60 miles an hour down to 45 miles an hour, they just do it. Well, they could actually come in if you had some horrible party that came in in 50 or 60 or 100 years from now and said, well, you know what, if you're not one of us, you're not Canadian. Well, that's a scary thought. That's, that's what Hitler did with anybody who was Jewish. We need in Canada to have a citizenship act where everybody has a constitutional right to be a Canadian, and we need to remove citizenship from politicians so that we have an ombudsman who is fair, who can look through the issue and doesn't answer to a prime minister or to a political party and can use common sense and say, yes, you, as Melinda would say, you've been here for 50 years or 60 years, you're Canadian, no question about it, and I don't even care what the intricacies of the law or a bureaucrat says, common sense dictates. And so that's what I would say. We need a citizenship ombudsman as well as a new citizenship act. Andrew, would you say that the C-37 Act has failed to the point where it needs to be re-examined, reviewed, and put to the Senate once again in a different form? Well, certainly. But the biggest thing is you need a totally new citizenship act. And problems that we identified uh, in C-37, the government was not willing to make the changes that could have eliminated problems that are now creating stateless people. And they didn't, they just didn't do it. I think it's important to point out that when we were working, uh, before we worked on C-37, the government maintained that there were only a couple of hundred lost Canadians. It was CBC radio and television that, through a series of programs, uh, hiring demographers and uh, statisticians, that established that there were hundreds of thousands of lost Canadians. And it was that burst of publicity that forced the government to come up with C-37. But C-37 was found wanting even when we were passing that bill. And the government refused to correct it. What would your response be that to Marlene Jennings? Do you think that the C-37 does have to be completely reformed, reshaped now? Yes, I agree. I think that C-37, I think that our Citizenship Act needs to be amended. We need to close these loopholes. I think that we have to make sure that it is charter compliant and that it also complies with Canada's international obligations to um, protocols and declarations and treaties that it has signed on the issue of stateless children, stateless persons, etc. I also believe that we need a national discussion on citizenship because we live in a world today which is globalized, where borders which used to constitute real barriers no longer exist. Here in Canada, we take a great deal of pride from the fact that we do, many Canadians, thousands of Canadians, do international work, either with private companies, with NGOs, do international cooperation. We're happy about that. But if that's the case, then we also have to look at the fact of their children and their children's children. So when Andrew raises the issue of, you know, um, only being able to pass on citizenship to a child born outside of the borders for the first generation, and that child may get citizenship, 
But then if that child, after living, coming back to Canada, living in Canada, being educated in Canada, then goes to work for an international organization for several years and has a child outside of Canada, they will not be able to pass on their citizenship to their child. What for you, Don Chapman, what do you consider will happen with people in this dilemma now? If this goes on for months and years, are there real dangers for anybody involved in this situation, stuck in this situation, that have kids, that have families split up? What can they expect in the near future? Well, going back to a question you asked me just a few minutes ago about the medical coverage. Well, little Rachel Chandler doesn't qualify for medical coverage in China, and she's certainly not in Canada and can't qualify. So does she have a problem? Or if she had a major medical problem, yes, she's got a, could be life-threatening. You know, it's a very simple fix there, too, because not only is that a violation of the United Nations Convention on the Rights of the Child, but it's a violation of the United Nations Convention on the Reduction of Statelessness. According to Bill C-37, and the spirit of the law, if there was a stateless child created, then Canada said, we will conform to our obligations and make this child a citizen. So what they're doing is they're not, they're not conforming to that. They're saying, okay, bring the child to Canada, which again is a headache. You might not be able to travel with a stateless child. But they're saying, bring the child to Canada and make it an immigrant. And after about four years, then the child will then qualify and then would have medical and everything else. So. It would be very simple. The fixes, as Andrew said, are very simple. You just have to have a government willing to have compassion and fairness and human rights and what you quoted the Queen as, rule of law. Well, my question for that, Don, would be, is would there be any difference in that position if you had another government? Or is this simply a bureaucratical situation? Obviously, you have had a problem if this has been going on for 63 years with all kinds of successive governments. What you need is, and this is kind of a, an issue that is heard around the world, is you need politicians that actually represent their constituents and represent their citizens. I mean, the, the reason you have a government is to protect your citizens or to make life better for your citizens. That's what we need. And what I want is a government to do just that. And so, yes, I mean, if the current prime minister won't protect their citizens, he shouldn't be there. It's that simple. Melinda Jarrett, again, I'm going to come back to you. Yes. Where does this position define Canada in its role in the human rights area? Well, it's a, that's a really good question, and I'm glad you asked it, because people tend to look at Canada as uh, you know, the bastion, and the, the, the force behind so many advances in human rights, and, and people come to this country thinking that this is the place where their human rights are going to be protected uh, all around the world. People are clamoring to get into this country. Every year, 170,000 immigrants are invited and welcomed into this country, and people look at this place as a safe haven from oppression and dictatorships and abuse. And to find out that, at, for example, Denise Tessier and her sister Sue Rouleau, who have lived here since 1946, that because she filled out a driver's license in Manitoba, she found out that she wasn't a Canadian citizen and then lost all her rights to everything, and there was no recourse for anybody. She had no choice. That was it. It was gone. And she's just one of many. Uh, Yvalier, I, I mean, we could just go on the names. I've just got so many. Virginia, Birkeland, uh, 
the names just keep on adding up of all of these people who have been told that they have no rights anymore simply because of a stupid form that was failed to be filled out back in 1962 or 47 or 48 or whatever year it was that they were supposed to fill it out. Or, or Melinda, I, maybe they were born out of wedlock. Or, and then, I mean, there's that whole issue of born out of wedlock, yeah. which we haven't really explored. That's another kettle of fish altogether. I mean, we've got gender discrimination. You've got marital status discrimination. These issues are all the point back to the the Immigration Citizenship Act not being charter compliant. And so I think in terms of human rights and Canada being, I'm, I'm from New Brunswick. Our New Brunswick, John Humphreys, was the co-signator author of the, of the Declaration, Universal Declaration of Human <coughs> Rights. He is from New Brunswick, and as a New Brunswicker, I'm very proud of that. I think John Humphreys uh, would be extremely unhappy and if he found out what was going on today, like Paul Martin, like so many other people who, who did so much good work and thinking that they were laying the grounds for a humanitarian country that would respect human rights, to find out, you know, 62-year-old ladies and 73-year-old men, veterans of World War II, stateless babies. I mean, it just goes on, the list goes, you know, goes on. Women who have marry a, a foreigner, uh, it just goes on and on. And to find out these, they're losing their, their rights of citizenship, and with that, passports, medical care, services, uh, well, uh, I think it's a big black eye for Canada, and I think more people need to know about it. And I do think people know about it, and I do think people are becoming more... I'm not so pessimistic. I have, I have more hope, and I believe that we are going to triumph, and I think it's just a matter of time. Persistence pays off, and Don, if anybody, is persistent. <laughs> Marlene Jennings, may I ask you, in the United States here, there is consideration in many ways, I think, to save face in government to grant 40 million illegal immigrants uh, with citizenship. Would it, considering that this is much smaller scale, would it not be better for the Canadian government to do the same, not only to save face, but to, to restore the values of Canada as a, a free country uh, with uh, great liberty for its people? Wouldn't it just be simple for them to do that at this stage? It would would be very simple. The government, through its minister, who has the authority under the current Citizenship Act, has the authority to grant citizenship retroactively to every single one of the lost Canadians. And he could do that by a stroke of a pen today, tomorrow, five days from now, one month from now, should he so wish. He has refused to do that. That's the first thing. Secondly, he could do that and then on the issue of only being able to pass on citizenship through the first generation, the cases that Andrew and Don have talked about, children born abroad to parents who were born abroad, for instance, that would be something that could be fixed through the legislation. But the minister doesn't have to wait until the legislation closes the loophole. Why would you say he is waiting on this? He would have to answer that. All I know is when I look at the conduct and behavior of the current government, the current government only makes decisions when it thinks that it will get them some votes. And I'm assuming then that they think that these lost Canadians don't vote for them if they did vote in past elections, and therefore why bother giving them citizenship now, now that it's been shown that they don't have citizenship. In the final minutes of the program, back to you, Don Chapman, and maybe Melinda Jarrett will want to be involved in this briefly. I hope that I'm pronouncing this correctly, but the lost Canadian Charles Bazet, the, the Canadian-born soldier, who 
very sad story. Maybe, Melinda, that might be something that you would con consider in terms of a, a social history record. But for you, Don, how has that impacted people? Has that been profiled by the media? Because it really was a fairly awful situation. Charles, the grandson, pronounces his last name Bosdet, but you are more correct if you looked at the French term. What they did is, here's a man who fought for Canada in World War One, was wounded, spent six months in the hospital, paid his own way to get there and back to his home after the war. And what they did is they, the, the bureaucracy decided that he fit the profile of a Mennonite because he had taken a job at one point down in Mexico in the coal mines. So they canceled his citizenship posthumously, saying, well, you were Mennonite and you don't deserve your citizenship. But they also did it to, their, to his grandson. Here's a man who took an original picture in Flanders Fields in World War I, a World War I soldier. And the family was, was covered under Bill C-37, as, and, and Charles was covered under Bill S-2. But it is just a shame when you're, when you're posthumously taking away citizenship to not just the soldier, but to the entire lineage. And I suppose for you, Melinda, that would be painting in social historical terms uh, the darkest hour of this country, do you think, uh, just having listened to that story? Well, that's just one of so many, and every day another one comes, an eye-popping story comes into my email inbox almost every other day, and Don and I share these emails, and I go, oh, there's another one. Melinda, the, the number one decorated soldier, the uh, flyer, a pilot of World War II, the, the yes. most decorated and actually decorated by the Queen of England, was a lost Canadian. Well, all I can say is the facts are the facts. This is the truth. As an historian, all I'm interested in is in being accurate and getting to the facts. And the fact is that there are lost Canadians being created every single day and new ones coming forth who never knew, and they are getting the surprise of their life. And they don't know that the terrible problem that really hurts, makes us feel bad for them, is that most of them have no understanding of the history, the, the people who have been involved for so many years and the struggles that have already taken place to, to even get to this point, and they're just starting, they're taking baby steps right now, they've just filled out their application for old age security and they just found out yesterday. And can you imagine, these are people who you know, have, don't have the wherewithal, never dealt with the government before, never did an interview with the media, don't know who, even know who their member of parliament is, don't know who the, you know, they think the mayor is going to help them. You know, they go to all the wrong places, they, they fill out the form, it's, it's, it's a learning experience for every one of them. And a shock. But as I said earlier, I have, I am a little less pessimistic. I have more optimism. I believe that as this cohort of people, especially with the war brides, if I may explain here, there's a cohort of war bride children who are going to start turning 65 in the next year and, and, and a half or so. And they were born in 45, 46, and as late as 47. Those children are now starting to turn 65. And they're now starting to find out. 
and they are getting mad and they are getting very angry and many of them do not have the wherewithal to make the phone calls and the inquiries to find out people like us in the lost Canadians community who are trying to help and they're just getting plain angry and disgusted and I, I, I hate to think of what the explosion it's going to be it's a demographic explosion that's what's going to happen let me come in uh, if okay. I may we only have exactly two minutes left I'd like to start uh, with Marlene Jennings uh, Marlene I wonder if you could just give me a very brief statement as to what you would ask of the government today having had this program what sort of action would be immediate I would ask the government to immediately grant citizenship to all of the applications that have that they already have in process and I would ask them to reopen the legislation itself in order to be able to close the loopholes going forward. And for you, Andrew Telegi, could you answer that uh, for me, sir? Well, we have about two, three million Canadians living abroad. So the problem with statelessness for second-generation Canadians is growing every day, and I think it's in the thousands, and it's going to be in the tens of thousands, and uh, leave it long enough, it will be in the hundreds of thousands. We have to fix the problem before it gets out of control. And for you, Don Chapman, just finishing up, sir, in the last 20 seconds, what would your, your message be for those in this crisis and for the government? I think that I shouldn't be expecting or asking too much of the government of Canada to abide by the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, the Supreme Court decisions, the United Nations obligations, and the rule of law. That's all I expect of them. Don Chapman, Andrew Telegi, Melinda Jarrett, uh, John Reynolds, Marlene Jennings, thank you so very much for being on the program today. Uh, we will follow this up with another program, and I do hope that we here at In Discussion can help you to affect change in this situation. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank you, and to our listeners, I uh, hope you, that you have enjoyed this program as much as we have. Uh, this actual program is actually getting many, many listeners all over the world. We do have a blog feature that is already being used for this particular issue. Please feel free to blog in. The more people that do that, In Discussion has the capability to hopefully affect change and help everybody involved. You can gain information on this and any other program in the series at davidgibbons.org. Meanwhile, wherever you are in this world... Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening. David Gibbons in discussion welcomes listeners' comments and viewpoints at its blog at davidgibbons.org. This programming is supported by organizations and firms in the private and public sectors. Can you imagine your message reaching an international audience with over 4 million impressions per month per program? on the most influential radio show on the Internet and have a link to your corporate website on the homepage. That's what you get when you are on In Discussion with David Gibbons. Not only that, but David's audience gets to hear about your corporation each quarter. For more information, go to David Gibbons' homepage and click on Contact Us. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Business Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericabusiness.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management.